right, good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And as uh, I think Spencer and Peter both said today, uh, we are really glad to see you all. And welcome to our first 11 o'clock service in about three and a half months. So it's back. And we're back with uh, two services. But um, we are, as Peter said, too, uh, starting a new series today. So if you're brand new to our church, kind of a good day to be here, preaching-wise, in the sense that we're uh, starting brand new uh, with a book of the Bible called First Thessalonians. And I'll talk about that, set the stage for the series Today a bit, uh, we'll look at a passage from the book of Acts, actually, a different book of the New Testament that talks about the city of Thessalonica and the Apostle Paul's church planting endeavors there, and so we'll get to that in Acts 17 in just a minute, but uh, it's been about three years since we've been in a New Testament epistle, epistle means letter, Uh, it's a genre of the Bible, there are many genres that make up the whole of the scriptures, but it's been three years since we've been in Philippians, and so it's a good time for us to go back and, and get at this segment of scripture, all the letters these types of letters were written after Christ was raised from the dead, and so it gives this explicit look uh, at what really happened on the cross, and it theologizes about it, and talks about what this means for daily life, and also, as Peter said, it's basically just preached my sermon, I guess, but also, as Peter said, uh, it gets a lot, about, a lot on church theology as well, so what does it really mean to be the church, to do church, to gather, but also to be scattered on a regular basis out into the world, and a variety of other things, too. This is one of the books that, for example talks a lot about giving our whole lives to other Christians. Uh, maybe something's brand new to you or kind of strange or weird or it's not, but you want to be reminded of this, and that's great. But some things that the Bible certainly talks about elsewhere, maybe not a lot, and so the, there's some unique angles on things that we're really going to enjoy uh, looking at with you guys these next several weeks. And so we'll probably be in this, I think, till early December, I'm thinking right now, but it's possible we'll um, come a little short of that or a little bit uh, longer that into Christmas too, but um, we, we shall see. So a couple things uh, on Thessalonians today. Actually, we're going to look at the idea of church planting uh, in Thessalonica. So church planting just means starting new churches. We talk about that a lot, so, and that's a new phrase we know for a lot of people. So just to be clear, the starting of new churches out of another church, the idea of planting the gospel. And a lot of agrarian metaphors are used at times uh, for the work of God's kingdom, for the growth of the spirit in a person's life, or just the growth of the gospel in a certain context, or ge- geographical, or again, heart context. It grows like a plant and bears fruit. Starts very small a lot of times, uh, like a mustard seed, but grows into the biggest of trees and serves as a home for birds and shade for animals and gives the best of fruit. And it's one of the parables and images that Christ uh, gives us in the Gospels about what he's really coming uh, to do and how substantially he's going to impact the world. Though it starts small with a whisper at the cross and we think, oh, he lost. This is, this is a huge sidestep off the the mainstream of what God was trying to do, but it wasn't. He was always intending to come in order to die, become a human being to associate with his enemies, us, lost people, and uh, and advocate as a human being. He had to become human or else it would be possible for him to die as a human being for human beings. So the fact that God became human is crucial to Christian doctrine. And so Christ talks about all that, embodies it, teaches it. And Paul, now the apostle, we'll talk about him in a second here, uh, theologizes a lot about it here um, as, as well. But a couple things, though, on uh, Thessalonica is the city in question. I have a map here uh, as well. Thessalonica was a large Greco-Roman port city in the first century, so that uh, circled it there. If it's hard to see that red uh, circle, and Macedonia is the greater region, but Thessalonica is there in northern uh, Greece. This was actually all under Roman rule during the first century, but that's uh, the ancient Grecian reason in, in modern-day Greece 
uh, as well, just to get your bearings, Jerusalem in the bottom right and, and so forth. But a lot of Paul's missionary journeys happened in that Asia Minor region in the top uh, area there where it says Galatia and Asia and Lycia. Then he went over to Greece and ultimately to Rome where he spent uh, time in house arrest and some of the last, uh, last years of life evangelizing people there and encouraging the church as it was uh, being born. So a little bit of geographical context there, but uh, as it refers to Thessalonica, Paul and company, he had a team a lot of times when he was planning churches, uh, went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He had three of them, kind of a fourth too, but mostly if you include this uh, Rome journey, but three big ones. And shortly after his time in Philippi, uh, he went there, and in response, this is really important to get contextually and biblically, he went to Thessalonica and the greater Macedonian region in response to a vision, a dream, that God gave him in the night. And I'll read from Acts 16.9, right from the Bible, it talks about this. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so he goes then and and evangelizes people and starts a church and, and so forth. We'll get into that. But a couple of things there, it's really cool. And just don't, again, don't glance over this. It's easy to do is, what this tells us is on one, one level, it's a good ministry lesson and life lesson, you know, just that God throws curveballs. We think we're going this way, and God says, no, I'm sending you this way, and that's just life. Been a Christian for a day, you probably experienced something like that. We think we know where we're going to be maybe in a year, and, and then uh, God has different plans. And so there's kind of a general lesson there. But what I, what I really like about this is that you see how involved God is in the evangelization of people. So Paul is doing with this vision is he's, or God is doing with this vision through Paul is saying, Paul, you weren't planning to go here, but I want you to switch directions and go over here to evangelize specific people in a specific city in a specific place. I want them to hear about me. That's what he's saying with the vision. So we get this picture of God who cares who's not just kind of winding up the robotic toy of the gospel and letting it go. Oh my gosh, it's turning left, and oh, I can't believe those people heard about me, and oh, I wish they would have, but it turned, you know, this way. But rather, God is constantly saying, I want these people to hear in this specific time and place. I want them to be, to have a, a church established around them and in them. I want to grow my gospel, again, grow the tree from the seed of the gospel in, uh, in this place. And so it's a really encouraging thing for all of you who are Christians is that this is our story as well. And I'll come back to this later, but for all of us who are saved, God at one point has given either a literal or a figurative vision uh, to someone uh, to say, go and tell that person about me. Whether it was in a corporate gathering like this or over a coffee table or in a house or at some point you heard about Jesus and you put your trust and your faith in him. So whatever the context there, there could be a variety of stories that we all have, but all of us find that you know, converging point is we heard that Christ was crucified, we heard that he's alive again, we heard that he was the Lord of, of the universe and he loved us and that, he substituted himself for us in that, and we said, I trust in his blood, I trust that it cleanses in me. But to see, kind of peel back the curtains a bit and say, God was involved in that. It wasn't you who ultimately found him, it was God saying, I, I want these people to hear, and so he moved implicitly or explicitly in someone else so that you so that you might hear we'll come back to that like i said but anyway uh, in thessalonica after initially evangelizing lost people in the city and reaching many thus forming a baby church uh, actually they were driven out of the city by an angry mob incited by some jealous jews we'll get to that next 17 later when paul was in a southern city another port greco-roman port city called corinth 
for 18 months after uh, Thessalonica. He had correspondence with the Thess- Thessalonian church and wrote First and Second Thessalonians, two of the 27 books of the New Testament, written about six months apart, both dating to A.D. 51 and 52, which is about 20 years or so after Christ was crucified and was raised from the dead. Historically speaking, hardly any time at all. So in Paul's letters, and understand that uh, too, that with all of this said, Paul's letters and all of the letters of the New Testament are historically contextual, meaning they're written to, to real churches and real time and real situations. He hears about things going on in churches he started, for better or worse, and writes to encourage them, rebuke them in some cases, teach them, pray for them, pastor them, remind them as forgetful people about the gospel that they first embraced but might be forgetting. Which is really important to understand when we realize that the Thessalonians are really, you know, and some of you guys have had a good experience with this, others of you haven't yet, but as you read the book and read these stories of churches, it's hardly, it's not hard at all to look at this converging point you have with their stories and say, well, that's, that resonates. I'm asking that same question. I wrestle with that same false doctrine. I entertain those lies. Or I had the same mess in my church, and I'm a part of it, or whatever it is. And we say, we almost laugh at the truth. I, I, I do that all the time when I'm reading some things that, whether it's biblical or, you know, contextual, just kind of in the world, when I can resonate with it, like a blog or something, or someone's article on, a, you know, being a young dad or being a pastor, in my case, or it could be any occupation that you guys participate in currently, or whatever you're currently reading outside the scriptures, you might have that moment where you laugh because it's so true. You say, well, I ask those same questions. I have those issues as a parent or a brand new graduate from college and trying to kind of get my feet in the world and my new job or whatever. You can resonate, right? It's the same with the Bible. This is a church as well, but it's even heightened here because we know the Spirit of God wants this to be time transcendent, wants this to be culture transcendent and not just to be for one particular. This is not just history. In other words, it's theological history that transcends time to, so that we can look at it and say, well, this is this is God. They're a church is speaking to us. This is, this is a church as well. This is a church saved by grace just like us. This is a church on mission just like us. This is a messy church just like us. And so we can resonate there and, and see that their story is really ours and God's words to them are really God's, God's word to us. So, so it's not a history lesson, like I said, just that, or even just a theology lesson. Factually, it's hearing God speak directly to us. If we don't have that perspective to begin, we start all of our series this way because you're going to get way more out of this, way more just out of preaching, way more out of your Bible reading as, as just as Christians or as people interested in the faith than you, would, uh, than you would otherwise. I heard John Piper say this week that uh, in the form of a question, he's another pastor here in the city if you don't know, but he said, do you want to hear God speak audibly? Then read your Bible out loud. That's God. So we'll do a lot of that this, in this series, of course, like we do every week. All right, who's Paul? Uh, Paul the author, a couple things on him. Paul was a Pharisee of the Jews, a religious leader uh, of the day. Uh, who we, we read about him first in Acts chapter 9 in the New Testament, and I'll quote a couple things here. But a Pharisee of the Jews who in, in the early years after Christ was raised from the dead, he persecuted Christians heavily. He hated Christians. He murdered them. He dragged people away from their kids and imprisoned them, Christians, imprisoned them, all in the name of being zealous for God. So a very misguided Jew, like many of them were. He wasn't alone here, but he was a very misguided Jew. But apparently, 
very, very loved by God as well. Because as the story goes, Paul's on the road to a, a town called Damascus to do more persecuting of Christians, probably in the way to murder believers. Jesus appears to him, blinds him temporarily on the road, knocks him off whatever he's riding, or on his, on his, on his uh, bottom at least, and asks him why he was persecuting him. Because remember, whenever a Christian's persecuted, it's actually Jesus who is being persecuted inside the believer, saves him effectively, calls him into a life of apostleship and church planting and says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. So he loves him. He saves him. And he says, part of your ministry now uh, as my son, my child, my redeemed, uh, is that you will bring the the best news in the universe to people who have never heard, primarily Gentiles, non-Jews, uh, he starts with Jews, but eventually moves on and then says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. We're going to pick up on that theme, actually. And that's not just Paul's story. Uh, that he, he has a special role in one sense, but not really unique. It's all of our stories. Uh, we are the Thessalonian church. Uh, we also are Paul uh, in, in the sense that we are saved in a similar manner and given, given the same kind of, of mission. So, We'll learn more about Paul along the way. Just a couple of things, though, this morning I wanted to pass on, th- those two things. And just to encourage you guys that understand half of the New Testament, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by Paul, and he is someone who used to not buy into any of what he's writing, who hated the church, who hated Jesus. And so if that's you on any level, you might not be that, quite that extreme this morning, maybe you are, uh, but you're not a Christian yet, and you kind of resonate there a little bit, if that's you, in a sense, you're in good company with this guy. You're reading a book written by a guy who used to murder Christians, plain and simple. Isn't it amazing that God chose to do that? Half the New Testament, for crying out loud, murdered them, you know, in the name of, of false zeal for, uh, for God, but nonetheless murdered, imprisoned, and now he's converted and writes about all the things he used to zealously zealously persecute. So that's the gospel right there, implicit in authorship alone. We haven't even read a word of 1 Thessalonians yet, a couple words from Acts 9, but that's the gospel right there is this is the type of person that God saves, people like us, people who are actively slapping him in the face. That's why Jesus says, why are you persecuting me when he appears to him? People who are actively crucifying Christ, seeking to kill God, He's at work in the world saving them from that type of mindset, from that false religious zeal or that secularistic, in other cases, might be a secularistic slant that they have or atheistic slant or just whatever it is, both sides. He's saving people like that, people like us. The worst of sinners. Paul calls himself the worst of sinners, I think, in the Bible for a reason. Just to say, we can look at that and say, well, if that happened, he can save me. We can see ourselves in him and say, I've done stuff like that, at least in my heart, or say, I've done really bad stuff, but, I mean, honestly, praise God, he's restrained me from being a murderer, but so how much more can he save me? He's an example in that regard. So nothing you have done, nothing you have done or ever will do is out of the reach of God's grace, is out of the reach of his love. Nothing. He has already paid the ultimate price for it. So don't stick something in between you and the cross that makes it bigger than than his blood. The scriptures don't allow for it prepositionally, in other words, in other words just like statement-wise, but they also don't allow for it just in the narrative. Paul was saved when he wasn't even looking for God. He was on his way to murder God's church. 
And Jesus says, I'm saving you right now in this moment. I'm choosing to save you. And he knocks him off of, his, off of his, his plans to continue on the road to hell. And he says, I'm interrupting that trip with me. I'm interrupting that trip with my grace and my love for you. And so the story goes. So our plan today uh, is to uh, preach the passage in Acts that where, where Paul visits Thessalonica. It's just a short nine verses in Acts 17, and, and for two reasons. One, for, more, for the sake of more historical and theological context for our study, which will really begin next week in 1 Thessalonians. And also, too, just as long as we're here, to really hear from God from this passage, to learn about the church, learn about ministry, a paradigm for Christian ministry, more about the gospel, what it is and what it is not. It's really important to get that latter piece as well because we all have misconceptions about the gospel. All of you brought something in today, probably, to varying degrees, that's not true about Jesus. The Bible never says it, but you think it's true. And I have that too. And so we, have, we need God to, to speak against those lies, those false doctrines that we harbor and that we want to hold to so dearly uh, to, to dispel them and, and save us from them ultimately. So we'll learn directly from it as well. All right, so Acts 17, 1 to 9. Let's read it in full to begin. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Kind of a funny way, turn of words there, but just means a lot. I know it's kind of obvious, but it's a literal translation, but just put in a ton of the leading women. Okay, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, who was one of the early Greek converts, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, the early converts again, before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay. So how I want to frame all this today, like I said before, is to see this and encourage you guys to see this as a paradigm for Christian ministry. In other words, this just happens when you start churches. This happens when you just try to be a Christian publicly to varying degrees, of course, not all in the exact same way. And Hiawatha's story certainly is not a, a word-for-word verbatim copy of this, but we can see a lot of overlaps, and I'll comment on some of those things as we go. So you can also get a, a kind of a glimpse for what we're about. If you're brand new to our church, maybe this summer or even today, Try to weave in some values of what we're all about as a community. So as you start to ask the question, is this going to be my home church? Am I behind this vision, how they do things on Sundays and so forth and just in general, um, that you can better make that decision. So I'll try to, we try to do that in the fall anyway as it is, talk about our vision and values, and so I'm going to try to overlap some things here, especially for those of you who are newer to our church. So Acts 17 as paradigmatic of Christian ministry, first thing you see here, Right off the bat is uh, Paul's value and the Bible's value, God's value of 
word-based and conversion-centered ministry from verses 2 and 3. So remember the background? Paul hears a a vision or sees a, a man in a dream from Macedonia crying out for help, and he goes there. What does he immediately do? He preaches. He goes right into the synagogue where the Jews meet. It was his custom to do this, to start with the Jews in a particular city, and some of them would believe, sometimes none of them, but then move on to the Greeks as well, those who were curious, who were interested in the the God of the Jews, who was really their God as well, and then he would um, preach to them as well. So he went in and immediately preached, pointing to the Bible, the promises of God in the Old Testament that were made true and found their yes in Christ, ultimately to Christ then, specifically notice his suffering and his resurrection. So it does not just talk about Jesus generally, it's very specific with the climax of of the Gospels, which is his death on a cross for us, his resurrection for us. And that there is another king in all of this, which actually isn't, isn't Paul's words, but the, the accusers at the end of the passage, you've noticed, says they're causing an uproar. They're turning the world upside down, which is like, true, they are. <laughs> you know? And they're saying there's another king. Well, true. They're also not saying Caesar can't be king. You know? So there's kind of a twisting of words there, I think, in the, in the accusations before the authorities, but they are saying there is a new king, uh, Jesus, and he always was. But he has, he has really taken his throne, and truly like good kings did in the day, and especially in the Old Testament, they, they really fought for their people. They crushed the true enemy, and in this case, it's a spiritual one, sin and death. They fought for their people, and, and they established peace, provided a wall of protection around the city. All of those things Christ does for us spiritually on the cross, and so they, they herald him that way. But really just a pronouncement, right? You, you notice how simple that is? Very profound, but also uh, very simple. And, and note what he doesn't say. Paul does not enter into the city after hearing the cry for help in the vision and start talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Nor does he talk about ministry to the poor. Nor does he talk about the importance of humility, all really good things, right? But rather, he focused on what God had done for them in Christ, in verse 3, talking about that it was necessary. And when he uses that word necessary, we have to ask, what, for what? He's not just saying it happened. He says it's necessary that it happened. Well, necessary for what? And the answer is, as the, as the Bible says elsewhere more explicitly, necessary for our deliverance, for our salvation, for our cleansing, for our eternal life. If that's what God wanted to do, that was the one way it was going to happen. There's no other way to be saved, the scriptures say. So God had to become a human being to advocate for us and to die for us in our place substitutionarily. It was necessary that these things take place and to fulfill the Old Testament because God all along in biblical history is constantly pointing to this through various forms and types and prophecies and foreshadowings. And so if God's promising that way and predicting, God will be a liar if Christ didn't come to fulfill all of those things. So there's that, that as well. But in all of this, Paul is reasoning, he's showing, he's explaining, he's demonstrating, he's preaching. All those active words there. Notice the words. He's speaking something to them, ultimately. And the gospel is just that. It's ultimately, the gospel is not do something for God, but rather God has done something for you in Christ. And remember, This is in response to him hearing help, seeing a vision of help. God's saying, the people in Macedonia are saying, help, come help us. 
This is what true help looks like right here. This is ultimate help. Otherwise, they're not keeping with the vision, right? I guess you could argue that, that, that God was saying help, but he didn't really mean preach the gospel. He meant something else, but they failed to do it. But that's kind of a, a silly thing. They actually followed the vision, right? And this is the, the pattern we see in the Acts, book, the book of Acts, is that Christ always calls his people to, when he does, to start churches and to preach. It's, it's just to do that. It's to preach with words and to focus on conversions and to reach people with their great spiritual great spiritual need. Again, Paul does not start reading the Ten Commandments here, right? So preaching and starting churches, addressing our sin problem, our shame, our distance from God, addressing the death issue. I mean, Paul just has the audacity here to suggest that the solution to all of our problems is the fact that Jesus has suffered and died and is now alive. That's it, (laughs) you know? Certainly an offense to many, right? That's why we see people actually turn jealous and be disturbed. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's an incredibly humbling message, but incredibly joy-giving as well. Help, he hears. His response, he goes in and speaks. It reminds me a bit of, and some of you guys know this story, but in Mark, one of the gospel accounts elsewhere in the New Testament that tells us that theological history of Jesus' life and how he heals, how he speaks, how he builds that story to the cross, the ultimate climax. At one point, uh, there's crowds around him so no one can access him, and he's been involved at this point in his early ministry, healing the demonized and the sick and and performing physical miracles. And so at one point, someone uh, dug through a roof. There were flat roofs in those days made of like sticks and mud and stuff like that. So they dug through a roof and lowered this paralytic, uh, paralytic's friends presumably, or family, him down on a mat, to get close to Christ so he could be healed. And so when Jesus sees this man lowered, you remember the first thing he says to him? What's the first thing he says? Your sins are forgiven, <laughs> you know? And in that moment, I'm, I, it wouldn't be wrong, I don't think, for the guy to think this, but, you know, it, it had to have crossed his mind or the guys, even the crowds watching, like, okay, that's good, but what about the legs, you know? It's why we, it's why we really came. But, but Jesus sees the physical problem and he addresses it with a spiritual need primary 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 the call essentially was help my friend who's paralyzed spiritual resolution right just like in acts help me in macedonia spiritual resolution preaches the word jesus is alive your sins more important to be dealt with than all of your sicknesses you come on your deathbed and, and if Jesus doesn't address that physically. It's not a loss for you if your sin is dealt with and the fact that you're separated from your creator and hellbound with all of your thoughts and deeds, all of ours. So the help that God gives is spiritual first and physical, though very good. So it's not saying physical is bad. Those are secondary, not primary, and also not even on the same plane as the spiritual. The spiritual is the head and kind of the rest of the body if you want to think about it in that metaphorical way, is the physical needs, which Jesus does um, address many times as well. So think about that. If, if you were dying and prayed for healing, maybe you had some family pray for healing as well, and, and Jesus was, was there in body and came to you and just forgave your sins and then left, would that be disappointing to you? Or if you're praying for rent, uh, and Jesus appears and says, your sins are forgiven, and then leaves. Would that be a kind of a moment of, wait a minute, 
That's not really what I wanted, not really what I needed. It's a huge heart check, you guys, huge gut check, because we don't know what we need. We don't really know. We, we don't have a good understanding of what our true needs are. We think we do, but we really don't. God knows you better than you know yourself. You think you know what the pro- I think I know what the problems are in the world all the time, but until the Bible gets in my face and says, no, this is what the real problem is, I'm misguided. You know, I think the world's a better place than it really is, or you know, I think my heart's not as dark as it really is, or I think I'm able to climb out of my own pit more than I really am, or wh- whatever it is. Until we have that gospel stare us in the face, we're just misguided, and Christ himself correct us, course correct us there. Or think, if you got a dream from someone from, say, Iowa or uh, India, you know, saying, come to Iowa and help us, <laughs> you know, or come to uh, St. Paul or, you know, Minnetonka or Duluth or, and help us, or India and help us, would your first thought be, let's go plant a church there? Or would your first thought be, let's start orphanages? Or let's help wash the feet of the poor on the street? Or maybe both, which is great. But what's your first thought? Because Paul, it's interesting here what Paul does, right? It's very paradigm shifting and and it can be pretty offensive to us. Depends on our backgrounds in this. Because he's certainly, certainly confronting many people who could be healed miraculously or could be helped out of their poverty. But he does not address that physical need. He addresses the spiritual because that's primary. Maybe later, it's not listed here or read, maybe later that's a part, certainly it's a part of what the church is doing for each other and the context in the city, no doubt. Those are good things. Please hear me on that. But the focus, right, is, is spiritual. So, so think about, just test yourself on that too. What's the first thing you hear when you're moved towards someone and you get that vision, again, literal or not, of help me? What's the first thing you think about in terms of how you can help? Is it like this, or is, is it not? True help from God comes in the form of spiritual help, given to us through Jesus' bloody body and his resurrection and glory three days later. Praise be to God. All right, second. So first is the, the word-based uh, conversion-centered thing there in, uh, in verses 2 and 3. Second uh, piece to the, the paradigm of Christian ministry we see in Acts 17 is as the gospel is brought to people, formally or informally, but through words, uh, in, well, but here in Acts 17, some, this is what it says, this is the, the, the words here that are used are really important to get, so, so note the words. Some Jews are persuaded, but many Greeks and many leading women are, are persuaded. So some Jews, and these are probably Jewish men, in the synagogue primarily, who Paul was interacting with for those few days, as was his custom. Only a few of those believed, but many, hordes of Greeks, uh, Greek men and women, and they, they mention the leading women here as well. Many of them are persuaded. This is all from verse 4. And that's really something very easy to read over, but I encourage you not to. It's so important. If you've read the Bible, maybe cover to cover, read a lot of it, you've probably, maybe your antennas went up and you thought, I've seen that happen a ton. Old and New Testament, the idea of God saving the unlikely over and over again, whether it's like a set of twins and God just decides to make the younger twin, which was, you know, out of order for that day, uh, the, the, the child of promise or the child of, of inheritance or whatever, or whether it's on a corporate level, like in Israel, working on national levels, or here now, 
in, in the church, God is doing this strange, mysterious thing of saving the unlikely uh, at kind of at the expense of, of the likely. Not a super clear line, because some of the Jewish men did believe, but the, the amounts are there for us to learn something here about God and about the expansion of, of his kingdom. So just to make sure you're hearing this, basically what it's saying is uh, a few, to say that a few Jews and then many Greeks and, and leading women, basically what that's saying is a few of the very spiritual people believe, but many of the pagans and the uneducated believe. A few of the religious people were saved, but many of the secularists who knew very little about God. And so again, it's keeping with this greater motif of God saving uh, the, the unlikely and working mysteriously. The smartest ones who should have known more rejected Paul and the message, but the uneducated who knew less received Christ. It's crazy. This is, there's supposed to be dramatic irony here in how we read this and to say that shouldn't happen. What's going on behind the curtains here to make this, make this possible? Have you ever wondered that, how, how so many Jews could have missed Christ? If you ever wondered that broader question, you're kind of on point here and, and on topic as well. So it happens so much that it's not a uh, coincidence. We have to ask, why does this happen? It's, it's something God wants to teach and wants to show us. The answer is to demonstrate narratively to us. So this is narrative, remember. So to demonstrate narratively to us that we're saved by his grace, not by our prior spiritual standing before him. So to demonstrate narratively to us that we're saved by God's work, in the world through his son, his gracious salvation given to us, not by our inherent goodness or our spiritual standing before him. So it's demonstrated here narratively in Acts 17, stated more clearly in 1 Corinthians 1. So let me read that to you for context here. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Consider your calling, brothers. So in other words, look at the circumstances surrounding your conversion. Remember that when that happened? When you became a Christian? Who told you what you were like? How, how little you knew? And also look around your church, look who you're sitting by, and look at yourself. And just kind of ask, are we the elite of society? I mean, honestly, are, are we, it's kind of like those humbling, I'm the one asking this, I'm not like taking a shot at you guys, I'm looking at myself too, <laughs> just saying, are we really like the, the cultural elite here? And some of you are, some of you guys are just wicked smart, and that's great, it's not like a sin or anything. God's not saying, be dumber, he's just saying that, or, or less educated, he's just saying that some of those are saved, but many more people who are very blue-collar are brought into God's kingdom. As you look at the global church, that's always, for the past 2,000 years, that's just been the case. Those who are poor, uh, sometimes kids ahead of their parents, their parents who are really smart, miss the whole point, and their kids who are like eight or fully understanding, can articulate the gospel back, and it's like, what happened? How's that happen? We're not even in a home where they can hear the gospel. How does that happen? We've seen that here. So how does that work? And that's the question. Why does this happen? Again, the answer is to show us grace. And so just to continue reading here, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Some of you were, but not many. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So that, here's the big so that. Why is he working this way? Why is he doing this? Why are we reading this kind of thing happen in Acts 17? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that all mouths might be stopped before him. 
that no one might be able to say anything to him at all that would kind of be to our benefit or credit, any kind of trophy, any ribbon, any point on a resume, any good work as though it got us to him. Nothing. Christianity is a boastless religion. If it's at all boastful for you, you have a wrong view of Christianity. So God invites you to tweak it today, twist it, maybe flip it 180. If it's about you and about what you do, not Christianity. If it's about God and what he has done for you and him choosing you, it's all about Christianity. So, so we have to ask narratively here, why is this happening? And the only explanation for the very mediocre, maybe leaning towards not so smart people, kind of that end of the spectrum, why are they flocking in and why are the very smart not, why are the very spiritual even, the very religious, those who knew the Old Testament better than anybody, why are they not understanding? Maybe a couple, but mostly, mostly not. The only thing that makes sense, it's exactly what Paul is trying to make the church understand here for their edification, the only thing that makes sense is if God is at work in those situations. Saying to Paul, go to Macedonia because I'm going to save people there through your message. If God is allowing, causing, wooing, softening hearts, choosing, chasing down, making possible for the weak to enter, if it's by grace alone we're saved, not by our works, not even our finding of him, ultimately, then all this makes sense. The theological math here proves it makes sense. But if not, if there was any sense to the idea at all, any truth to the idea at all, that there's something inside us, some small degree of our intelligence, some small degree of our, of our context, our families, some small degree of our strength, some small degree of being prone to spiritual ideas, it, it, and, and that that alone, without God's prompting or help, got us to him, if that was at all true, Acts 17 couldn't be written this way. It wouldn't exist. Acts 17 would rather say, Paul preached, all the Jewish men flocked in, none of the, the Greek women or men got in. That's what would happen. Because it would be by education, it would be by strength, it would be by ability to articulate. But that's not happening. God is screaming to us the gospel, but also demonstrating to us the fact that he is at work giving visions of go to Macedonia and dine on a cross for our sins so that we can't stare at it and say, look at how great I am. We can't look at the cross and say, you're great. I can't either, right? It confronts us with beautiful truth, but incredibly humbling truth at the same time because it says, nothing you ever do for the rest of your life, no matter how good, could get you a millimeter closer to God. That's what the cross confronts us with. It's not about what you do. He can prompt good in you, but that's from him, not for you, so that you cannot boast, Ephesians 2.10. But nothing you do on your own, no, no form of intelligence, no righteous work, that's just what the cross, otherwise, are you kidding? Is God really going to do this? Is he really going to become a human being and suffer in this capacity? It's ridiculous to say that. Oil and water. Either God does everything through the cross, he saves completely through those means, dies the worst of deaths, suffers the worst of evils, and we do nothing, or we do absolutely everything and he does nothing. This is, this is why the cross is what it is. It's not leaving it to us to, to blend them. We can't blend, oh, God was tortured to death on a cross for six hours, but I'm a pretty good person, and I can get in, and, and there's some things he still wants me to do to find him. It's like, come on. That's heresy. 
It's evil. It keeps us away from God and puts the, the spotlight back on our hearts, which, you know what, maybe aren't so bad anymore. And we start to trust a little bit less in the blood and a little bit more in our performance before him. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, All of this is true to show us that it's all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. God works in these ways, you guys. It just The makeup of churches alone screams that God is love, screams that God is good, a chaser-downer of people who are not even looking for him, a chooser of his enemies to be saved. All right, third here. Uh, so some believe, some don't, and, but many are taken to another step of being provoked to jealousy. So the third point is here, paradigm for ministry, people will reject. Some are provoked to jealousy and are disturbed by the message and persecute the messengers. Verses 5 and 8. So just a few things here. One, the obvious, just has to be said though, and that is rejection will happen. If you want to be public at all about your faith, people will, some will receive you, like Jesus and Paul and Book of Acts and all the people you probably know who are living publicly with their faith. Some will receive and some will reject. It would be very easy for Paul to think here, by the way, too, that, oh, I got this vision from God about this man in Macedonia saying, come help me. It's a very miraculous moment, you know, and think, well, because of that, it's probably going to be really widespread, in a widespread manner received. They're probably going to, you know, Welcome me with a parade and a banquet and a band and everybody will be saved, you know? After a vision like that, how could that not be true? But no, it was a vision, come help me, miraculous, Paul switches gears, he goes and he's beat up. And it's like, well, what the heck? Well, what's that all about? You know, what's the plan of God in that? How does that occur? So rejection happens, though. And we shouldn't think that either. Paul probably wasn't thinking that, but to whatever degree that we might or we, we do, as God has given our church a vision of the people of Minneapolis effectively asking for help, as he's called us here, that will mean widespread rejection. It's happened a lot in, uh, in, our, in our church. Uh, in, even even uh, um, from the, the gospel standpoint, and it offended people there, uh, if you didn't know this, we've had a lot of that happen at Hiawatha. Uh, people who have left simply over the message over the years, the nine years we've been a church or so, not leaving over the lights being too dim or the color of the carpet or the, the windows being glazed or something silly like that, but uh, leaving over the gospel, saying too much grace, uh, too much Jesus, I can't handle it. Uh, I, I want more to do in a day, and, and they leave, essentially looking for a religion. Happened multiple times over our years. And, but, you know, we look back at this and say, well, ha- happened to Jesus, offensive message. Too much God, too little us. Happened to Paul. It will happen to us. If the gospel is truly preached right, it will bring in many and attract the masses, but it will also repel a lot of people as well. In some contexts, more than are being brought in. It's not about numbers. It's about being faithful with the message and trusting God that as seeds are planted, he will allow the fruit to grow on his watch. One thing I want you to see here too though is uh, the pattern, and some of you might have noticed this just thinking, oh, I've, we've seen this whole mob thing happen before. And going back to the Gospels, everything that happened here with Jesus happened, or sorry, with Paul happened to Jesus as well. And, and cyclically in the book of Acts too, but I won't go into that today. But remember in Christ's ministry, he spoke truth. I have a table here as well to help you get this, but 
On the right side, Jesus also spoke, but actually embodied the truth. He was the truth. He was received by many, rejected by many, just like Paul and the believers in Thessalonica. His words, too, were twisted in a way, and he was dragged away by a mob, right, before his crucifixion and brought before authorities. And this is a really hard thing to get uh, in one sense. Maybe some of you are there, and that's great. But to understand that there are patterns in the Bible, generally, but that as a church, as his body, we will relive out his life because he is reliving out that life within us. Suffering will occur because he suffered once for all. And so we will reflect that suffering as we bring the message of love to our enemies, those who hate us. So that not only our preaching becomes the words of Christ and becomes the word of truth, but our actions and what's happening around us. So as people hear about Jesus dying on a cross, they're seeing it demonstrated by their own maybe visceral words of hate going back towards us. Or maybe their sneers, or maybe other people doing that that they're watching. They're seeing the church be ridiculed, just like our God was ridiculed 2,000 years ago. It becomes a drama. It's a play. It's a demonstration. It's a picture. The greater truth, of course, is the words, but it's also, we can't control this, but he will bring this on, uh, on, his, on his church. God has a plan for suffering. He's going to bring, bring great good out of it. So the kingdom reality here then, just to summarize that, is when we love as Christians, people, the church or outside people, when we love them well and, and speak truth to them, we will be hated and, and rejected. But when that happens, it's not just a context for preaching. It's a context for embodying the gospel by being patient underneath that hate. And a lot of it will be unjust. Some of it, maybe there's a sliver of truth that you've got to own up on, but a lot of it's just unjust depictions of your motives or something like that. And it's suffering. But a lot of good, if God is willing it, will come out of it. You know, the fact that God was rejected by human beings, again, it's going to be, going to be re relived out. So that idea of suffering to glory, cross to resurrection, will be relived out in our lives. Paul talks about that, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5 or somewhere around there where he says, I'm constantly being given over to death for your sake that you might receive life. So death to life. I'm suffering so that through my suffering, somehow you will have more of the Bible in your hearts. You will have more of a stable church. You will see more love demonstrated. So leaders, this is a big deal for you, especially if you're leading in the church or want to here or you're part of a different church just visiting today. It's a big deal for leaders, but for all of us, is to suffer well and just know that don't be surprised by it once or, or one but to uh, sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And notice here, too, that it's kind of a fourth thing, but related, and, and, and I'll just, a uh, quick thing on this is, God's grace really comes through suffering. So on the heels of all of this is uh, tons of grace. Through all of this, I mean, it's one of those things, too, and, and a lot's probably not said, it's nine verses, but it is history, but still, the way it's written, <laughs> like, on the heels of all of this mess, are you kidding uh, a church is born? How does that even occur? How does a, a church thrive under all of that? Paul goes and preaches. The, a, a mob is formed. They, they're incited. They're brought before authorities. New converts are attacked. And voila, a church is born. You know, it's, not, it's not like church planning strategy 101. Like you pick up a church planning book, you don't see that like on page one. Just this, if this happens, this will be great. But I think Paul this is happening under, under God's sight, you know, in his, in his vision, his plan to show that through suffering a lot of good comes, in this case, life. So God uses weakness, preaching, reasoning, 
foolish, simple sermons. Look how simple his was here. And again, suffering, messiness, uh, to be this uh, picture of, of the cross as it's being uh, preached. And the Thessalonian church thrives too, right? This was born, but it thrives. In chapter 1, just to give you a taste here, we'll come back to this next week, but in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, Paul says to the church, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So, you know, in the days of no Facebook and email, people are just hearing all over the region that this is an amazing church who has thrived amidst suffering. They have believed amidst persecution. And so lots of life and goodness and encouragement comes from it, uh, just like it came from Jesus' death on the cross, the darkest thing ever. So in conclusion here then, uh, all of Scripture is meant to teach you, and this is a good uh, platform to jump off of for our study. We'll talk more about this, but coming weeks. But uh, all of Scripture is meant to teach you that you are saved by grace alone, not by your works. The fact that Paul is saved at all, while not even looking for Jesus, just summarize a few things we've looked at here. The fact that Paul is saved at all, while not even looking for him. You weren't even looking for, and this is true for us. None of us were looking for God when we were saved. He just wanted to still save us, and so we were saved. The fact that God gives a vision to Paul to go to Thessalonica, clearly intending to save a certain people in a certain place at a certain time, salvation is from God. It happens only when he intends it to happen. The fact that Paul, in response for people's cries for help, preaches about Jesus' death and resurrection, not religious morality. The fact that we hail a king who lowered himself for us more than we try to be kings ourselves. The fact that only a few Jews are saved, but many Greeks and women are the fact, uh, who are very uneducated there, the idea of uneducated, the fact that against all odds, churches are born and thrive, the fact that great good comes through suffering like it did on the cross, and we could go on. See, all of this is either saying Christ and him crucified explicitly, or it's showing it, it's narrating, it's demonstrating it, so that things wouldn't happen in our lives with our conversions. Our churches wouldn't look like this if it was about our works. That we would all be the elite of society. We'd be the cream of the crop if it was about us. But so that we can't conclude that, so that we cannot boast, God chooses to save the weak, those who aren't even looking for him sometimes, so that um, we might see, not just hear, but see God saves by grace when he wants to for his glory. Out of love for lost people, we do not in any capacity whatsoever save ourselves. So three things uh, in uh, closing here. One, rest in that idea. Rest in him. Christ does not say to you, try harder here. We've seen that. Rather, he says, it was necessary for me to die for you. That's his message for you today. You are and I am. Hiawatha is the Thessalonian church. We weren't looking for him, but God gave a vision to other people uh, of us in need, and uh, we were sent a missionary so it was necessary that, uh, he, that he do this. He says, I told someone to go talk to you about me when you weren't even asking for help. That's the gospel. That's the message for all of us today, if you're saved. And if you're not, this is the message for you as well, that God is wanting and intending to do that even now as you hear about him. Second uh, is speak Jesus to the masses, bring gospel help to people, get a vision of Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, pray, uh, get broken over lost people and think the best way that I can help, it might be to demonstrate, it might be physical, and that's great, 
But the big thing God wants me to do in the context of my church, linking arms with my brothers and sisters right here at Hiawatha, is to speak truth. Because no one comes to faith without hearing. Only, it, faith only comes from hearing. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17. It only comes, no one has ever been saved in the history of the church from seeing the gospel dramatized. As, as great as that can get people to the threshold, you can't love someone into the kingdom. It's never been done. Who has that story? Do you know anybody who, who says, I've been loved so much that all of a sudden I became a Christian. I knew everything about the gospel. They didn't say it, they didn't tell me about it, but I was loved in. No one has that story. But rather, I was loved well and got to the church and the threshold of the faith and someone told me about a greater love that God has for me that I'm seeing a whisper of in the church, but a greater love that God showed me on the cross. And if you put your trust in that, you too can be saved. That's the, that's the only way uh, people uh, get in. So think about giving help to your brothers and sisters through words primarily and deeds, but secondarily. And then thirdly and finally, suffer well. Suffer well with Jesus, put others before yourself, and in that demonstrate what Christ did for us, the essence of our message. Uh, I think it's 2 Timothy 1.9, I forgot to look this up, I quoted this, I could be off. Anyway, somewhere in the Bible, it says, uh, suffer well like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. One of the commands of the Bible for you is to go suffer. Suffer. Suffer with Christ. Fight uh, the, the, the battle before you and, and put others first. And in that sacrifice, as you're preaching about the sacrifice of Christ, make it clear to those on the receiving end of your message, Christian or not, that you're giving something up for them because you really do love them that much. You care about them. More, more, about, your, more about them than yourself. So suffer well uh, in that as well. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your gospel, your gospel today, uh, whispered to us and spoken very clearly in Acts 17, that it was necessary that the Christ would suffer to fulfill the scriptures and to save people from the state that they're in, uh, in their sins. So God, I pray that you would encourage all of us today, right now as I pray even, people are putting sin above you if they're thinking, God can't forgive me of that, that you would squash that thought that nothing is bigger than the blood of Jesus. You save murderers. You save adulterers. You save the wicked. You save all of us. Whatever we've done or thought, that's why the cross was so bloody, why it was so terrible, because you were taking on the sins of the world as a substitute. And so, thank you that in that is your love, that in that is uh, your plan to redeem, that in that we see a glimpse of the mercy and the justice of God, and, uh, and we can put our trust back in. So, uh, save us, God, uh, from all of our false doctrines of, um, of human power and human ability and, uh, and all of that that are just really from the pit of hell. And instead, bring us back to the cross and stare at that and say, that's what I need. That's what God gave when I wasn't even looking. That's how he chased me down. Uh, glory to God. Thank you for your deliverance today. Help us to respond in song in light of it. In Christ's name, amen.